The Sydney Dialogue and Opportunities in Space. That really allows us to differentiate between those technologies where China is slightly ahead, but it's really a neck and neck competition, and those where they're absolutely dominating. Critical Technology Tracker. The national space mission for Earth observation is so important. There were four satellites in the initial vision designed by Australia for our needs and built by Australia for our own economic benefit. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Next week, Aspie will convene the Sydney Dialogue, the world's leading policy summit on critical emerging cyber and space technologies. To give a preview of the discussions, Beck Shrimpton speaks to Professor Alan Duffy about opportunities in the space sector, Space 2.0, and the growing nexus between emerging technology and space. Hello and welcome to the ASPE podcast, Professor Alan Duffy. Hi, Alan. Hi, Beck. How's it going? Good, thanks. Lovely to have you with us. Alan is, of course, very well known in the Australian and in the global space sector. He's appeared often on television and on radio, and he helps us all understand the science of space. He's actually done uh, a huge service to the Australian community by making concepts that are really incredibly complex and technical, understandable and relatable to the average person. Now, Alan's at Swinburne University where he's led an incredible effort uh, looking at the very practical applications of space, uh, as well as the more theoretical ones that he's very well known for. He's about to start a new role. Alan, can you tell us about that? Absolutely. It's the, the formal title is a Pro Vice Chancellor for Flagship Initiatives. And these are the signature, all of university themes, space and aerospace, uh, innovative plant and uh, med tech. And really those three focused areas will touch across potentially every researcher uh, in the uni, but importantly also the uh, external stakeholders, both communities and companies. And the idea is that those big, all of university projects that may take years to bring together, uh, to find the partners and to advocate to government are now, uh, at least in part, my and my team's wonderful uh, opportunity and burden to try to deliver on. And I think when, I mean, the excitement is there is very little as exciting right now as things like space, quantum, hydrogen, med tech, and the ability to achieve an impact on scale in those focus areas. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't take long for, for my boss to convince me. It sounds extremely exciting. And one of the things, that, Alan, that, that I think is, is unique about you, but we need to curate uh, more of in this country is, is that really bringing together of, of different expertise of industry, of mm -hmm. academia, of you know, understanding commercialization and value and, uh, and all of those things. So that's, uh, that's important. Um, you know, explaining exactly why space is important and the state of space is a task that we really do need ever more people doing. Uh, and that's why at ASPE we're certainly accelerating our efforts in this space, pardon the pun, space is so full of puns. <laughs> These efforts, of course, include the Sydney Dialogue, which ASPE will convene in Sydney on the 4th of 5th in April. And I'm thrilled that Alan has agreed to be a part of that effort. He will lead our new space discussion there for us. Super excited for the dialogue and Alan particularly, of course, for your session. So today we'll provide a little bit of a, uh, a preview into some of the topics that we'll talk about there, but we'll go beyond that because uh, the, the breadth and depth of Alan's experience is, is really unique. So uh, we'll try and get into, into as much of that as we can in a short time. So Alan, to start in your views, What's the state of space in Australia today? How is space used? How does Australia get access to it? How do we get our data? And what are we doing in this country that our listeners should know about? In a nutshell, it's growing in, in both the upstream and the downstream. Now that's, that's the broad collection of activities. The former upstream, that's where you make things. We have new companies in launch, such as Gilmore, hopefully launching later this year, as well as satellite manufacturing, what you do then choose to launch. We've just seen the largest Australian constellation ever flown by Skycraft. We have the ongoing expansion of the fleet of communication satellites by fleet, uh, very fittingly. And we've also seen enormous investment in the ground-based assets, space situational awareness with Leo Labs, for example, uh, opening up in WA, as well as 
you know, comms relays by any number of parties, including most recently the Swedish Space Corporation. So in terms of assets that you can manufacture, you can hold, you can point to, it is absolutely a growth sector. But most of the value is not just the, it isn't the, the assets in space on the ground, but rather what you do with the information that you can capture from space. So the downstream, one of the the signature efforts of, of um, my time as the inaugural director of the Space Technology Industry Institute of Swinburne was a strategic partnership with EY where we went to help their clients using our uh, deep tech, uh, deep AI knowledge along with our observation to provide solutions to end users through space. They didn't really care if it was space or not. They just wanted to know what was their um, vegetation management policy or procedures to reduce the risk of bushfire broader uh, initiatives around water leak detection, for example, from, from orbit. So trying to address environmental concerns. And, and if we step back a little further, just in general, climate change monitoring, and even very specific to all of us, everyday weather forecasting. And yet, and this is the most extraordinary aspect of the promise and the, quite frankly, delivery of the benefit to us all as Australians through space is that we don't own or operate a single weather satellite. And every morning, I can assure you, especially in Melbourne, it is my ritual to take a look at the weather forecast and maybe do that five more times in the day because it is, you know, <laughs> Melbourne. And that, that's, I think, why the National Space Mission for Earth Observation is so important. There were four satellites in the initial vision designed by Australia for our needs and built by Australia for our own economic benefit. Now, we need that data for all the reasons I mentioned and more, maritime surveillance, monitoring. ISR is the flip side, of course, to, to all of the good civilian assets and, and aspects we get from space. But, but we also need to make those systems uh, achieve NASA-like standards as part of this initiative. And then that means our companies can export that satellite technology internationally. This, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity and just... Quite frankly, I'm just so lucky to be here in this country right now as we transform our nation more broadly, not just the space industry through this kind of initiative. That's great, Alan. You, um, you've, what you've done there beautifully, I think, is you know bring home just how much we rely on on space, and we we don't think about it because we're we're you know the the end user or the end use is right here on Earth, and the solution that it solves is uh, is down here on Earth. The other thing I think is incredibly important in what you just said is the opportunity for Australia uh, in the national missions. Look, one thing I might ask you to expand upon, why is it something like a national mission that is the kind of thing that truly catalyzes industry and truly catalyzes an economy? I mean, we talked about the various activities upstream and, and downstream. You know, we're quite, uh, you know, we're quite expert in some niche capabilities, but what is it about missions that really moves the needle when it comes to talking about maturity as a space actor and developing and growing a, a real and a, and a sophisticated space industry? It's the fact that it raises all of the individual organisations in this regard, Geoscience Australia, the CSRO, the BOM and others, but also the individual companies. It challenges us to have an integrated uh, delivery uh, as of a standard that is, well, in this particular instance, internationally recognized to operate uh, and be interoperable with, with NASA. So those kinds of standards will advance all of our companies and research organizations in a way that no small individual uh, grant, say, ever could. A contract that you have to deliver because there is a customer at the end of the day is going to focus minds and drive excellence. And in particular, drive quality uh, assurance and an ability to provide a product that at the end of the day will be purchased. And this is an ongoing uh, engagement. This is the, essentially, if you will, the landsat of our generation the ability to scan the world as part of this global mission, but with a very tailored, focused center package for Australian needs. We have unique landmass. We have unique maritime uh, borders to monitor. There are any number of use cases that will come, but it's only by being so expansive and quite frankly, visionary that I think the Australian government can drive all of our sectors to operate an internationally relevant 
manner and that's how you export you have to be the best at these things and the national space mission is a way for us to be focused for years and a little plug for the uni sector here we can do some of the tech development uh, some of the sensor packages for this we can support in any other ways probably our most important way we'll support is by training up that workforce who will develop who will build and will operate and in the end take the data back from those national space missions and turn into end products we need to know a decade hence there is a market need for our students because the journey to educate them starts years before those satellites will launch and all of these things mean we need to be planned strategically as a nation and that's what the nsm gives us beautifully put alan um look i think if i was to to summarize you know we need to be ambitious but the key to that is having that ambition grounded or anchored in, in practical and relevant outcomes. And you touched on many issues there. The space sector raises workforce being one of the most important ones. So um, so that was great. Thank you so much. Can I shift you now to space 2.0, a term that's bandied around quite a lot or, or new space. Mm -hmm. Seems to be an era of space that is characterised by the shift of activity and locus and investment and innovation out of the government sector, out of private and highly secretive government labs and into the commercial sector. Can you talk about it? What does it mean? What is this new space race? And my goodness, aren't we seeing one right now? As we talk about lunar missions, there's a race to the moon going on right now, right? There is, and, and distinct from the Apollo era, this space race is between startups, not superpowers. The ability to access space has been democratized. There's cheaper than ever, more players are involved than ever. And that constant competition is driving innovation, excellence is lowering costs. It is the open market, the free market doing what it does. And I think the key to that era space 2.0 was the very prescient uh, visionary step and quite frankly, brave step by NASA a number of years ago with their commercial contracts where they would support independent companies uh, in some instances, literally just set up just a few years before in the case of SpaceX to provide cargo for the International Space Station and a number of other initiatives. And what they did differently to, say, Apollo, which, of course, as is often pointed out, there is a private company at the end of the day built, you know, Saturn V, and there was lots of private companies involved. Yeah. But NASA was involved at every step, every stage in design, consultation, integration. So now the difference is, going to the market and saying, we have a price to achieve this outcome, and we won't worry about how you get us there. Now, to be fair, they do keep it a close eye, but you know, in a very positive um, supervisory and helpful sense, the innovation can be unleashed. The experimentation that a company will do every launch in the case of SpaceX, something is always being tested out, just would be, I think, unthinkable as anathema to those larger organizations. Now, in NASA's case, it's allowed them to focus and do what they do best, which is those deep space missions, for example. And we, we've seen a golden age, I think, of those kinds of capabilities. The moon is an interesting halfway house where low Earth orbit is now the domain of truly private enterprise, where uh, commercial rocket providers launch commercial satellites for commercial reasons and defense and government are just one and sometimes a very small paying customer for that service. And that's Again, something that is a very recent phenomenon. We're talking literally just in the last few years of growth, we've seen this trend. The moon is still hard enough to get to that we can't quite say it's been commercialized yet. Uh, but we are seeing commercial players going there. We are seeing the likes of iSpace on their way. The uh, space, uh, an Israeli startup, crash landed with its bare sheet uh, um, uh, lander but uh, a few years ago and if it hadn't and it was only just the last few meters that it failed uh, would have landed uh, an entirely private startup funded initiative to get to the moon in fact actually took water bear so it has has literally delivered life forms to the moon which i don't think any of us were completely thrilled about discovering because then in the crash they got scattered but uh, as far as we're aware they've, they've not been able to colonize the moon yet i guess we'll, we'll discover that in in artemis <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is now it's a private company doing this activity begins to open up the potential players who would like to do science on the moon or at lo in uh, low earth orbit we have a program the swinburne uh, space Youth innovation challenge which 
every year sends up high school designed constructed experiments to the space station. This is, and then they, they, they get the experiments back. And we, you know, this is unthinkable just a few years ago. So all of these activities that we, I think now take for granted in LEO will extend eventually to the moon, but it's worth bearing in mind for now, the only customer on the moon is government. If we begin to liberate the resources of the moon, in particular the water uh, that we uh, suspect lies in deep reservoirs and permanently sh shadowed craters, that that uh, water ice can be split into the hydrogen and oxygen, that's literal rocket fuel, then you can refuel the uh, NASA missions of Artemis that go beyond the moon to Mars and make that actually affordable. But also, and critically, you can take that same hydrogen and oxygen and bring it to the satellites in orbit and refuel them in orbit and extend their lifetime. And some of these assets can be a billion dollars. And now you go from a 20-year life uh, time to maybe an extension of another 10. That's an incredible cost saving. So there's a very large market opportunity, I think, with the moon as the next industrialized frontier. We're not there yet. We're still very much dependent on political will, but it's fair to say that at least in low Earth orbit, the space sector is, is there to stay because it's driven by profit, not politics. Yeah, which brings its own challenges, of course, but, but also um, many, many, many solutions, not only for managing a sustainable space environment, but again, uh, for problems back here on Earth. Uh, nice segue in much of what you said there. Um, I'd like to ask you about the nexus that's really emerging or that exists between emerging tech and space. It can be tempting, uh, I, I think, those of us who like to, to have things really well ordered and, and manageable for us to think about, you know, just, just to talk about AI as a capability or a technology, robotics as one, quantum, biotech, yet all of these have different applications and different meanings, particularly in the context of space. All of them uh, have a place in space. So can you comment on this growing nexus and, and why we need to keep concepts like adjacency in mind when we mm. think about technology and its applications? So I find it fascinating where you have these technologies that are uh, coming together, unlocking incredible new opportunities. And it really is that nexus of, of technology. So taking the example of AI on its own, fascinating, love the techniques, technologies advancing in AI, uh, be it GANs or transformers, but it's the application of AI to data sources uh, as, as rich and varied as possible that the real benefits and excitement for me come. And of course, I'm a little biased here, but when we see the use of AI applied to the huge quantities of data uh, from remote sensing, of course, drones, uh, aircraft, balloons, if that's not too topical still, uh, but also, of course, satellites, and in particular, the commercial uh, sector and exponential growth in the numbers and indeed capabilities of those uh, satellite fleets from infrared optical to to SAR, what we're seeing are huge amounts of data being available uh, to be trained on and learned from by these AI. And it's the opportunities for us as uh, producers of those insights, as well as consumers of them, be it in our communities or companies that I can see huge advances. We really have only just begun to see the benefits of the space uh, uh, revolution, the space 2.0 uh, sector we, we spoke about uh, here on Earth. The challenge, though, is will we, as a country, as communities, as, as a society at large, be agile and perhaps just as importantly, responsible enough in securing those data sources for the AI? Because that's the limiting factor. And I think that's something that we've not yet reached a mature level of discussion about as a certainly as an informed electorate. And I think that's one thing that we want to, uh, all of us in the, in the AI space uh, sector should be mindful of as we, we go and, and speak, as I'm doing with you all now. Another fascinating uh, nexus is between uh, quantum and space. So uh, space, we have the emergence of optical, that is say laser-based communication, which is you know, point to point. Uh, ground to, to satellite and indeed inter-satellite and uh, in particular offering huge bandwidths 
a very secure, inherently secure comms where it's it's pretty obvious if you're intersecting that that laser beam, uh, you, you'll reel yourself if you're even able to get a uh, a receiver uh, that close to the the target beam. Now, with some foresight, those same uh, laser-based communication infrastructure can be quantum compatible. So now we unlock quantum communication that just happens to be via space. It's, it's faster, it's more direct uh, in the sense of, of time, there's, there's less lag. Uh, light travels slower in the optical fibers on ground than it will uh, to be relayed via space in, in uh, certain circumstances. So all of that means that there's an incredible future for communication. One of the very largest uh, uh, economic values that we can derive from space and this quantum communication future just will turbocharge that. And then the very much next step would be to use that infrastructure to connect the advances we're seeing in quantum computing, where we have these growing quantum computing capabilities here in Australia, of course, uh, globally, to connect those compute centers using that quantum information network and get the quantum internet where you can handle uh, even larger challenges and derive even greater value for all of us from those incredible advances. So of course, this is early days uh, in that quantum internet, but it's it's already possible to begin to see its its emergence or at least the the outlines of its of its structure. The challenge with all of these emerging nexus uh, of technologies is that we have to be strategic in our investment. We have to be patient in the investment. Uh, it is hard to bring together these adjacent sectors. Uh, we are usually uh, incentivizing researchers and companies to drive ever deeper on an ever more narrowing field of expertise to step back to, to connect up these adjacent sectors. That takes a special effort and it does take, I think, some special resourcing. It also requires us to be brave. Uh, and that is because these are ambitious, incredibly exciting futures, but that will take time to realize and there's no certainty we may ever quite get there. And that demands bravery of us as researchers, as companies making the investments, but also of course, as government in supporting all stakeholders and of course, uh, investing in that future to try to realize it. That means we have to spread our investments. We have to do it wisely, sensibly, but bravely. And then I think we'll have a very exciting future ahead. Yeah, beautifully put. I do think you're, you're absolutely right. Something we need to do in this country is take that step back and take a really strategic and deliberate and comprehensive view of what we're trying to achieve and invite more people, more sectors, more actors into that conversation. Look, Alan, I think we've run out of time. I had I had a lot more I wanted to talk to you about, but that just means we're going to have to do another podcast another time. And again, you know, the Sydney Dialogue will will be another opportunity for us to, to get into some of these topics and some sharper-edged ones as well. But I have really enjoyed chatting to you as always. Alan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Continuing on the technology theme... Danielle Cave and Jamie Gaida discuss ASPE's landmark project, the Critical Technology Tracker. Based on a year's worth of research and analysis, the tracker looked at which countries are ahead in 44 critical technologies by published research, including defence, space, robotics, energy, biotechnology, artificial intelligence and quantum. China leads in 37 out of the 44 technology fields, with the US leading in the other seven. To find out how other countries perform, visit techtracker.aspi.org.au. Hi everyone, my name is Danielle Cave and I'm here with my colleague Jamie, who led a huge project we launched a few weeks ago in India at the big Racina Dialogue called the Critical Technology Tracker. Please Google it while you're listening to us and it should come straight up. Uh, We'll be discussing this uh, a lot next week on the sidelines of our big technology, cyber and space focused dialogue, the Sydney Dialogue, which is taking place 4th and 5th of April. This critical tech tracker is really a beast of a project, so huge, uh, and it reveals where countries, universities, national labs and companies around the world have a competitive advantage in high impact research across 44 technology areas. And we'll be continuing to build this project up over the coming year or two. 
we'll soon be adding uh, 20 more technologies, Jamie. And in my view, I reckon we try to aim for maybe 100 technologies over the next year or so. I don't know if you want to come in and say that's a terrible idea. It's too many techs. That that's a big uplift, uh, and I love the enthusiasm. Uh, I'm the the one that has the pleasure of having to implement these things. So yep. we'll yep. Uh, yeah, we've I'll got a great team here. We've got a great team here. It's an amazing project, and uh, we certainly are going to fill out the uh, rest of the technologies covered in the Prime Minister and Cabinet critical technology list that was uh, released a while ago and we're also adding pillar to AUKUS technologies but keen for uh, other people from government and civil society to jump in and add their thoughts on which technologies are essential to be included in this product update. Yeah and, I, and we're going to go through other government lists and take a whole range of, of techs as we, we build it out. Um, and look, high impact research is a key performance measure of scientific and technological capability, and we'll get to that in a second. But a, a very powerful feature of the website, as well as comparing countries, is a data tool that Jamie and the team painstakingly built called the Talent Tracker. It's very beautiful, great colours on there, and it reveals the flow of global talent in these 44 technologies, and it highlights brain gains and brain drains. So you can see who is a giver or a loser of talent, depending on if you're a glass half full or glass empty kind of person. You can see who is benefiting from postgraduate training in five eyes countries you know china's certainly benefiting a lot from that the world is benefiting from india's talent which flows everywhere particularly to the us a lot of their talent in silicon valley um, but beyond this incredible uh, set of data sets what you also get i think out of this project are unique insights into strategy intent and potential future capability it provides very valuable new insights uh, that we didn't have before into the spread and concentration concentrations of global expertise of scientists and technologists around the world who publish publicly. And it, and it shows you individuals and it shows you organisations. So I might throw to you, Jamie, and we'll bounce around for the next 15 or 20 minutes. There were some big findings here, particularly China findings, I thought. That's where the media focused. What was surprising to you out of this project over the last sort of three to six months when you and the team started to figure out uh, what the key findings were? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The Obviously, the most striking finding from the report is China's lead across a number of technology areas. And that was absolutely surprising, uh, particularly uh, electric batteries is one of the areas where the dominance is just unmistakable. They have 10 out of 10 of the world's leading institutions, and they also are producing uh, around, uh, I think it's around nine times the volume of high impact research papers. Uh, and I really want to make sure we get this point in early that we didn't look at the, to the total volume of research papers, because we know that's an easily manipulated metric. There's lots of poor quality research out there. So our product and report uses only the top 10% of most highly cited papers within each technology area uh, after adjusting for publication year. And that is a, a absolutely critical point to understand because it's, it's super easy to publish low quality papers and you know basically run a, a publication mill, but those papers that genuinely push the boundaries of the field and unlock new capabilities and make new discoveries, shortly after they're published, they become really highly cited by other scientists who recognise the value of this work. And that's what this, this uh, project does. And the other thing to, to make a mention of is there's some technology areas that the lead that China has which uh, typically over the US is the second country, sometimes the lead is only one or maybe 2% difference. And so that's why we've built this other way to evaluate uh, how profound the lead is. And that we call the technology monopoly risk. And that accounts uh, introduces two factors. It looks at how much more the leading country is producing relative to the second country. Are they producing five times as much or uh, you know, only uh, a couple of percent more. 
And the other thing that we looked at is how many of the top 10 institutions in the world are situated in that lead country. And that really allows us to differentiate between those technologies where China is slightly ahead, but it's really a neck and neck competition and those where they're absolutely dominating. Yeah. So that was the, the first observation. But in terms of surprises, the India and UK are doing remarkably well. They are the clear leaders of this group of second tier countries. So if we say China and the US are you know, undoubtedly are the top two countries, that second group of countries that comes up behind, you know, that rounds out sort of the top five countries or, you know, and appears really commonly in the top 10, India and the UK are absolutely the leaders there. But the most surprising thing for me was to see Iran appear across a number of technologies, and that included things like nanoscale materials, uh, advanced coating, smart materials, advanced composite materials, and also, interestingly, advanced aircraft engines. So that group of technologies, you could say that clearly there's a defense application for that group of technology. So what this might be telling us is that Iran is funneling all its research effort into technologies that have a direct application into military capability. Yeah. So we had China as the lead, right, on 37 of 44 techs, which span, you know, and these techs span defence, space, robotics, energy, environment, biotech, AI, advanced materials and, and quantum. And the US came second in most of those, but then it came first in things like vaccines, didn't it, and biotech. That UK-India finding I thought was fascinating and when we pre-brief them in the work and brief them um, often in countries, you know, with India, they were quite delighted, I thought, uh, by those findings. A couple other things stood out for me. Russia, I thought, would appear a little bit more than it did, but but they just didn't. They were high on quantity. So Russian Academy of Sciences, for example, was always up there, low on quality. Uh, I thought that was an interesting finding. Um, Japan didn't do nearly as well uh, as we thought it would. South Korea did very well. But I thought Australia, and this is something I've, I've talked about a lot uh, because we should take advantage of this, I thought Australia did very well. And it's cliche to say it, but gosh, on, on critical tech areas, we're punching above our weight. What did you find interesting about Australia's findings? Australia did, as you said, did very well. And, and this is, you know, a commonly used refrain that, yes, we punch above our weight. And in the research field, that's absolutely true. What we lack is that entrepreneurial uh, spirit that yeah. we see exemplified most clearly in Silicon Valley, where people who are doing research in universities, they are constantly looking for opportunities to spin out new technologies and established companies based on their research findings. And because of that, there's a much healthier venture capital market there. We've seen the consequence of this in the past. So back in the 90s, Australia was a clear leader in photovoltaics research, but we lost that group of talented individuals who were uh, encouraged uh, and incentivized to move to China. And now China uh, is the dominant manufacturer of photovoltaic panels, so solar panels. But there's other opportunities that are on the horizon for Australia, and we need to jump on these and not make that same mistake. The key areas are cybersecurity, where we're doing incredibly well globally. And the other, there's a grouping of uh, energy technology. So we have electric batteries, where Australia is in the top five. We have supercapacitors and we have hydrogen and ammonia for power. And when you look at that and think, where could opportunity for Australia be? You have to naturally think about energy export and providing low cost energy to our manufacturing industry. So we can, uh, you know, we have lots of predictable weather, lots of sunshine, lots of uh, relatively cheap land where we can install large photovoltaic arrays. Of course, the sun doesn't shine at night, the wind doesn't always blow, so you have to combine that with grid-scale batteries where you can store several days' worth of uh, energy and then release it during the nighttime and re release it according to demand. And there's some fantastic research coming out of Australian universities on different battery technology. So 
if we pair that battery technology up with our minerals, so we have lots of uh, rare earth metals and often they're required for the manufacture of batteries. And that's another area that Australia leads in the research of is the critical minerals extraction and processing. Plus we have huge amounts of lithium. So naturally you have to think, let's put all those things together and provide our citizens and our manufacturing industries with cheap, reliable power that makes us more competitive and start building a battery manufacturing capability here in Australia. Yeah, when when we started pulling the, the sort of final um, data sets together and, and working on the website and fighting for weeks about colours of the website, were we going to choose blue or purple? And I still don't know if we made the right choice to go with blue because purple's more interesting. But anyway, unimportant. I kept looking at the data just thinking all I could see is opportunity for Australia here and particularly my favourite feature of the website when you go to the homepage is that you don't have to just compare countries. You can compare groupings and you can build your own groupings. So you can, you know, you look at when you when you pick things like the quad, you can pick quad, AUKUS, uh, Five Eyes, you could, you know, pull together the EU uh, and the United States. That That's an incredibly strong grouping. You can pull together, say, AUKUS plus Japan and South Korea, you know, whatever interests you. And then you really do look at this strengths of these very key groupings and how different the picture changes quite quickly. Uh, one one other thing I want to ask you, Jamie, and, uh, and it's an interesting one because I was on maternity leave while you guys all decided this, and it took us many years to fund this project and getting up and running. But last year, you and the team and Fergus Hansen, who is a former colleague of ours, who we miss a lot, made the call to go with high-impact research above other uh, data options such as patents. So can you talk us through why you and the team made that call last year? Absolutely. And it's probably most easy to start from the endpoint and work backwards. So very recently, Danielle, you and I had to go to a whole range of very senior briefings over in the US, in DC, to the uh, US government and uh, others. And the, the findings were so surprising that we found that people wanted to challenge the method rather than take the findings at face value. And I think that's great that we we were challenged. But in those briefings, we were asked several times, do you 100% stand behind the quality and the integrity of your findings? And we were able to stand up and say, yes, we absolutely stand behind these findings because we started with the data and followed where the data took us. And we were very careful um, how we process the data. Now that would not have been possible if we'd started with data sets where they're very messy and they're different from country to country and it's very hard to put them together in a consistent way. And that was the challenge that we faced when we looked at patents, for example. Now, we had a lot of back and forward with the company that provided the patent data set and we were not able to get a satisfactory answer about how we can locate a particular breakthrough in a patent to a particular country, particularly because the, the global company who owns a patent, the patent is assigned to the headquarters of the company rather than the particular branch uh, of the company located in one of these countries. And because of that, we just, we couldn't confidently separate the the patent findings out into which country uh, the discovery was made in. The other things that we looked into were venture capital funding. Now we could get uh, very good funding from the US, but when you start to ask the question about, oh, can we add in India and the UK and China and Australia, and can we make it all consistent and trustworthy? The answer is that's very, very challenging. We would have loved to be able to quantify company R&D, uh, but again, data quality challenges, particularly when you want to do it cross country. We'd love to know about how much research funding goes into this effort, but we know that research funding doesn't necessarily always translate into output. 
So that was that was another concern for us. And again, the inability to get consistent cross-country data sets. Uh, of course, and everyone asks this, well, what about classified research that's conducted within governments around the world? And of course that happens, but not surprisingly, they are not willing to provide us the data set to do a project like this. <laughs> they uh, tend to keep secret research secret. Um, yes. And, you know, we, we tend to only find out about these things a number of years down the track. One interesting example is uh, RSA encryption was developed several years before it was publicly uh, known uh, in the US government. And we only discovered that fact about 30 years down the track. When you talked about the trustworthiness of the data set, spend a minute talking us through, you know, not in too much detail, but how you guys pulled together these data sets, because I remember checking in with you all the time and you had these massive processing pipelines and you were spending, you know, some team members were spending four or five months dedicated on just cleaning and building these data sets. And for people listening, I think of this as the most innovative space for open source intelligence and it's where everybody should be moving. It's the darkest side of of, of OSINT. It's very hard to access, it's very deep, it's layered uh, and it's data heavy and it takes a huge amount of time and money and diverse skill sets to build this sort of OSINT capability. So just run us through for a minute and we'll finish up soon on how you and the team did that from a big picture point of view. Absolutely. The starting point is uh, choosing the database that you're going to use for the project. And in this case, we selected Web of Science, which is one of the world's biggest and well-known databases around research publications. Once you've got access to the database, it's it's a paid subscription. Uh, Once you've got access, you then have to write queries to get the right set of research papers on a particular technology. And that in itself is a a really huge piece of work. One uh, example I'll throw out is with small satellites. Uh, which is one of the technologies covered in the critical technology tracker. Not surprisingly, they're often called microsatellites, but those with a biology background will know that microsatellites is the name for a repeating region of DNA that's really important for cancer diagnosis. So we had to make sure we were accounting for those edge, edge cases and only getting the relevant research papers within a technology area. Then we had to build a data processing pipeline to identify the top 10% of most highly cited papers within a publication year. And that was done in uh, the R programming language. Then this was the hardest part. We then had to take the author affiliation address and work out for 2.2 million research papers. We had to work out the country where that author is based. And we had to do very, very large scale data processing pipelines to uh, correctly identify uh, a country of origin for all of those authors. There was a number of edge cases, again, where we had to account for uh, different spellings of a, of a country. So Czechia and Czech Republic is one of the most obvious ones. Another is Turkey and Turkey Air. Uh, sometimes the address had a misspelling in it, so we had to surface those and uh, handle those cases. But I I would say the hardest part was getting the institution address, getting that right. And Jenny, one of our team members and a data scientist and a very, very accomplished physics researcher. Incredibly. She spent, absolutely, such a a privilege to have her working on this project. Uh, And she added a huge amount of insight around particularly quantum physics in the report. So that part of the report is particularly strong. And she spent five months full time building this data processing pipeline so that we could account for uh, thousands of university and company names and correctly attribute each research paper to the right institution. We had to account for the full name of the university We had to count for abbreviated names of the university, you know, with and without punctuation, with and without spelling mistakes. We had to uh, know that certain 
research labs were located inside universities, things like Lawrence Livermore Lab. We had to dig into the data and understand that centres of research excellence, uh, often that will be the address that uh, an author puts on their paper and we had to disambiguate with which universities uh, is that research centre affiliated with. We had to do all of those things and we had to get it right and it had to capture all of those variations I've talked through and, and that, as you said, this is the darkest of open source data that, that you can have because that's not a small effort and it's not something that you can do without funding behind you to, to have the team focused on the challenge in front of them and, and focused on this is what we need to achieve how are we going to achieve it? And then getting getting on and getting the job done. So a massive, massive piece of work by the team. And it's in, I think we'll, we'll wrap up soon, Jamie, and he, I wanted to make sort of one or two last points here. One is that, you know, this project doesn't show the actualization of of technology, it almost gives us a heads up to the direction things are going. And that heads up for some technologies is short. It could be a year or two for some, it'll be decades. And we talked a lot, we had some really interesting debates, I thought, you know, on this recent trip we did to India and and Washington DC, where, you know, we talked about different examples. So the electric battery example, you've already said, China's enormously dominant and they're dominant both in the research and commercialization space enormous opportunities for Australia and others there, but right now uh, they're dominant there. In in examples like advanced aircrafts and hypersonics, which is a category, they are dominant in this high-impact research space, but we know from a commercial perspective they're not, they're not there yet um, and, and the technology and there's a range of supply chain issues it is not there in place, but it shows an enormous, I think, strategic intention to catch up so that's why they're doing well in that space. So those were some of the nuances that we talked about with, with those types of findings is, you know, how much of a heads up is, is this giving us to the, to the direction things are going in? I wanted to finish by saying, you know, as well as the website, we've got a very long report and we have more than 20 policy recommendations. And Jamie, I'm going to throw to you in a minute to maybe pick the one or two that you think are most important. These These recommendations talk about, you know, obvious things that, Australia and some countries are already doing. It's for partners and allies. It's, it talks about boosting R&D investment, uh, driving commercialisation, building better and more focused talent pipelines in the areas of technologies that we care about. And it talks about, you know, the huge importance of global partnerships, things like supercharging Quad, for example, the importance of, of a grouping like AUKUS, I think, becomes even more clear because of this project. Uh, we talk about moonshots and big ideas, and we talk about supercharging intelligence efforts. I'm going to pick one of my favourites, Jamie, and then let's finish up with you. One idea that I really like is a recommendation we have in the report that Five Eyes partners should partner with Japan to build a dedicated China technology collection and analysis centre. And we put out there that starting with open source uh, would be a sort of um, a, an easy an easy jump into that. It's always hard to engage and collaborate between multiple intelligence partners, but on the Ausint side, that would be a sort of easy win. And, and frankly, a centre like this was needed yesterday. So it's something that governments should jump on. Jamie, what, what was your sort of top one or two recommendations you think are most urgent? For me, I'm going to focus on human talent. Uh, you know, my previous career as an academic, I was often training honours and PhD students. And so I've got a fundamental understanding that none of these technology breakthroughs, none of this research is possible without the right team and without the right people. So one of the recommendations we make is around a quad technology visa to make it far easier for talent to move between quad countries and to facilitate knowledge sharing. And I'll particularly call out that that absolutely needs to be for young researchers. Australia already has a visa class for people who are already making a world-leading impact in research, but I think the missing piece is those young researchers. And we need to allow them to move much more freely and also give them career opportunities. So 
you know, I'll just throw out an example that it should be super easy to get a visa to move between quad countries to do research on critical technology. And there should be maybe two or three years of work rights following completion of, of study so that it makes it even more attractive, you know, move to Australia, do your study with some fantastic researchers, and then you have two or three years to uh, work in Australia before uh, you need to go back to your home country. And we also even mentioned that perhaps there should be streamlined processes to permanent residency for people who've worked in these technology on these technology visas. The other one is the observation that academics are rational actors and they're often thinking 15 or 20 years ahead and they're doing that in their research but they're also doing that in their career planning. So we need to set the mechanisms in place whereby our most talented current and future researchers when they're looking around to say, where am I going to fit within this research environment? Where is a really productive and rewarding career path that will allow me to support my family? We need to make technology that area that they focus on. And that's where things such as the Sovereign Wealth Fund comes in. So if we set up legislated mechanisms for establishing a Sovereign Wealth Fund and clearly state that it's directed towards research on critical and emerging technologies, then that's going to provide a really powerful indicator for people to make the decision around, yes, I will start in this area because I have confidence that in 15 and 20 years time, it'll still be an area that's well resourced and will be a, a good career choice. I think that's a vital point to end on because at the moment I don't see that confidence in the market, we don't pay our PhD scholars a living wage, which I think is appalling. So you can't expect to both attract and retain the best talent if they're earning under a minimum wage. So that's one problem. And then you don't have certainty on funding, do you? And it's not just it's not just researchers, is it? Is it? It's scientists as well. It's a whole range of areas. So really key place to end on. Thank you, Jamie, so much for being on the podcast with me. Thank you. It was lovely to chat. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. To follow the Sydney Dialogue next week and key session highlights, make sure you follow aspie underscore org on Twitter. Thanks for listening.